Chapter Forty One of the Tenant of Ophel Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anastasia Simão de Portugal. The Tenant of Ophel Hall by Anne Bronte. Chapter Forty One. March Twenty. Having now got rid of Mr. Huntington for a season, my spirits began to revive. He left me early in February and the moment he was gone i breathed again and felt my vital energy return not with the hope of escape he has taken care to leave me no visible chance of that but with the determination to make the best of existing circumstances here was arthur left me at last and arousing from my despondent apathy i exerted all my powers to eradicate the weeds that had been fostered in his infant mind and sow again the good seed that they had rendered unproductive Thank heaven, it is not a barren or a stony soil. If we spring fast there, so the better plants. His apprehensions are more quick, his heart more overflowing with affection than ever his father's could have been, and it is no hopeless task to bend him to obedience and win him to love and know his own true friend, as long as there is no one to counteract my efforts. I had much trouble at first in breaking him of those evil habits his father had taught him to acquire but already that difficulty is nearly vanquished now. Bad language seldom defiles his mouth, and I have succeeded in giving him an absolute disgust for all intoxicating liquors, which I hope not even his father or his father's friends will be able to overcome. He was inordinately fond of them for so young a creature, and, remembering my unfortunate father as well as his, I dreaded the consequences of such a taste. But... If I had stinted him in his usually quantity of wine, or forbidden him to taste it altogether, that would only have increased his partiality for it, and made him regard it as a greater treat than ever. I therefore gave him quite as much as his father was accustomed to allow him, as much indeed as he desired to have. But into every class I surreptitiously introduced a small quantity of tartary matic, just enough to produce inevitable nausea and depression without positive sickness. Finding such disagreeable consequences invariably to result from his indulgence, he soon grew weary of it, but the more he shrank from the daily treat, the more I pressed it upon him, till his reluctance was strengthened to perfect abhorrence. When he was thoroughly disgusted with every kind of wine, I allowed him, at his own request, to try brandy and water, and then gin and water, for the little top was familiar with them all, and I was determined that all should be equally hateful to him. This I have now effected, and since he declares that the taste, the smell, the sight of any one of them is sufficient to make him sick, I have given up teasing him about him, except now and then as objects of terror in cases of misbehavior. Arthur, if you're not a good boy, I shall give you a glass of wine. Or, now, Arthur, if you say that again, you shall have some brandy and water. He's as good as any other threat, and once or twice, when he was sick, I have obliged the poor child to swallow a little wine and water, without the tartary emetic, by way of medicine. And this practice I intend to continue for some time to come. Not that I think it of any real service in a physical sense, but because I am determined to enlist all the powers of association in my service. I wish his aversion to be so deeply grounded in his nature that nothing in after life may be able to overcome it. Thus I flatter myself. I shall secure him from his own vice. 
and for the rest, if on his father's return I find reason to apprehend that my good lessons will be all destroyed, if Mr. Huntington commence again the game of teaching the child to hate and despise his mother, and emulate his father's wickedness, I will yet deliver my son from his hands. I have devised another scheme that might be resorted to in such a case. And if I could but obtain my brother's consent and assistance, I should not doubt of its success. The old hall where he and I were born, and where our mother died, is not now inhabited, not yet quite sunk into decay, as I believe. Now, if I could persuade him to have one or two rooms made habitable, and to let them to me as a stranger, I might live there with my child under an assumed name, and still support myself by my favorite art. He should lend me the money to begin with, and I would pay him back and live in lowly independence and strict seclusion, for the house stands in a lonely place, and neighborhood is thinly inhabited, and he himself should negotiate the sale of my pictures for me. I have arranged the old plan in my head, and all I want is to persuade Frederick to be of the same mind as myself. He is coming to see me soon, and then I will make the proposal to him, having first enlightened him upon my circumstances sufficiently to excuse the project. Already, I believe, he knows much more of my situation than I have told him. I can tell this by the ever-tender sadness pervading his letters, and by the fact of his so seldom mentioning my husband, and generally evincing a kind of covert bitterness when he does refer to him, as well as by the circumstances of his never coming to see me when Mr. Huntington is at home. But he has never openly expressed any approbation of him or sympathy for me. He has never asked any questions, or said anything to invite my confidence. Had he done so, I should probably have had but few concealments from him. Perhaps he feels hurt at my reserve. He is a strange being. I wish he knew each other better. He used to spend a month at Stanley every year before I was married, but since our father's death I have only seen him once when he came for a few days while Mr. Huntington was away. He shall stay many days this time, and there shall be more candor and cordiality between us than ever there was before, since our early childhood. My heart clings to him more than ever, and my soul is sick of solitude. April 16. He's come and gone. He will not stay above a fortnight. The time passed quickly, but very, very happily, and it has done me good. I must have a bad disposition, for my misfortunes have sorted and bitterly me exceedingly. I was beginning insensibly to cherish very unamiable feelings against my fellow mortals, the male part of them especially. But it is a comfort to see there is at least one among them worthy to be trusted and esteemed, and doubtless there are more, though I have never known them, unless I expect poor Lord Lowborough, and he was bad enough in his day. But what would Frederick have been, if he had lived in the world and mingled from his childhood with such men as these of my acquaintance? And what will Arthur be, with all his natural sweetness of disposition, if I do not save him from that world and those companions? I mention my fears to Frederick, and introduce the subject to my plan of rescue on the evening after his arrival, when I presented my little son to his uncle. He is like you, Frederick, said I, in some of his moods. I sometimes think he resembles you more than his father, and I am glad of it. You flatter me, Ellen replied he, stroking the child's soft, wavy locks. No, 
You'll think it no compliment when I tell you I'd rather have him to resemble Benson than his father. He slightly elevated his eyebrows, but said nothing. Do you know what sort of man Mr. Huntington is? said I. I think I have an idea. Have you so clear an idea that you can hear, without surprise or disapproval, that I meditate escaping with that child to some secret asylum, where we can live in peace and never see him again? Is it really so? If you have not, continued I, I'll tell you something more about him. And I gave a sketch of his general conduct, and a more particular account of his behavior in regard to his child and explained my apprehensions on the latter's account and my determination to liberate him from his father's influence. Frederick was exceedingly indignant against Mr. Huntington, and very much grieved for me, but still he looked up at my project as wild and impractical. He deemed my fears for Arthur disproportioned to the circumstances, and opposed so many objections to my plan, and devised so many milder methods for ameliorating my condition, that I was obliged to enter into further details to convince him that my husband was utterly incorrigible, and that nothing could persuade him to give up his son, whatever became of me, he being as fully determined the child should not leave him as I was not leave the child, and that, in fact, nothing would answer but this unless I fled the country, as I had intended before. To obviate that, he at length consented to have one wing of the old hall put into habitable condition, as a place of refuge against the time of need, but hoped I would not take advantage of it unless circumstances should render it really necessary, which I was ready enough to promise. For though, for my own sake, such a hermitage appears like paradise itself, compared with my present situation, yet, for my friend's sakes, for Millicent and Esther, my sisters in heart and affection, for the poor tenants of Grasdale, and above all for my aunt, I will stay if I possibly can. July 29th Mrs. Hargrave and her daughter have come back from London. Esther is full of her first season in town, but she is still hard-walled and unengaged. Her mother sought out an excellent match for her, and even brought the gentleman to lay his heart and fortune at her feet. But Esther had the audacity to refuse noble gifts. He was a man of good family and large possessions, but the naughty girl maintained he was old as Adam, ugly as sin and hateful as one who shall be nameless. But indeed, I had a hard time of it, said she. Mamma was very greatly disappointed at the failure of her darling project, and very, very angry at my obstinate resistance to her will, and this shows still. But I can help it. And Walter Jew is so seriously displeased at my perversity and absurd caprice, as he calls it, that I fear he'll never forgive me. I do not think he could be so unkind as he has lately shown himself. But Millicent begged me not to yell, and I am sure, Mrs. Huntington, if you had seen the man they wanted to palm up on me, you'd have advised me not to take him too. I should have done so whether I had seen him or not, said I. It is enough that you dislike him. I knew you'd say so, though Mamma affirmed you'd be quite shocked at my doubtful conduct. You can't imagine how she lectured me. I am disobedient and ungrateful. I am thwarting her wishes, wronging my brother, and making myself a burden on her hands. I sometimes fear she'll overcome me after all. 
I have a strong will, but so has she, and when she says such bitter things, it provokes me to such a pass that I feel inclined to do as she bids me, and then break my heart and say, There, mamma, it's all your fault. Pray don't, said I. Obedience from such a motive would be positive wickedness, and certain to bring the punishment it deserves. Stand firm, and your mamma will soon relinquish such persecution and the gentleman himself will cease to pasture you with his addresses if he finds them steadily rejected. Oh, no! Mamma will rarely all about her before she tires herself with her exertions. And as for Mr. Oldfield, she has given him to understand that I have refused his offer, not from any dislike of his person, but merely because I am giddy and young, and cannot at present reconcile myself to the thoughts of marriage under any circumstances. But by next season, she has no doubt, I shall have more sense, and hopes my girlish fancies will be worn away. So she has brought me home, to school me into a proper sense of my duty, against the time comes round again. Indeed, I believe she'll not put herself to the expense of taking me up to London again, unless I surrender. She cannot afford to take me to town for pleasure and nonsense, she says and it is not every rich gentleman that will consent to take me without a fortune, whatever exalted ideas I may have of my own attractions. Well, Esther, I pity you, but still, I repeat, stand firm. You might as well sell yourself to slavery at once, as marry a man you dislike. If your mother and brother are unkind to you, you may leave them, but remember you are bound to your husband for life. But I cannot leave them unless I get married, and I cannot get married if nobody sees me. I saw one or two gentlemen in London that I might have liked, but they were younger sons, and Mum would not let me get to know them. One specially, who I believe rather liked me. But she threw every possible obstacle in the way of our better acquaintance. Wasn't it provoking? I have no doubt you'd feel it so, but it is possible that if you married him, you might have more reason to regret it hereafter than if you married Mr. Oldfield. When I tell you not to marry that love, I do not advise you to marry for love alone. There are many, many other things to be considered. Keep both heart and hand in your own possession, till you good reason to part with them. And if such an occasion should never present itself, comfort your mind with this reflection, that though in single life your joys may not be very many, your sorrows at least will not be more than you can bear. Marriage may change your circumstances for the better, but, in my private opinion, it is far more likely to produce a contrary result. So thinks Millicent, but allow me to say I think otherwise. If I thought myself doomed to old maidenhood, I should cease to value my life. The thought of living on, year after year, at the grove, a hanger-on upper mamma and Walter, a mere cucumber of the ground, now that I know in what light I would regard it, it's perfectly terrible. I'd rather run away with the butler. Your circumstances are peculiar, I allow. But have patience, love. Do nothing rashly. Remember, you are not yet nineteen, and many years are yet to pass before anyone can set you down as an old maid. You cannot tell what providence may have in store for you. And meantime, remember you have a right to the protection and support of your mother and brother, however they may seem to grudge it. You are so grave, Mrs. Huntingdon, said Esther after a pause. When Millicent uttered the same discouraging sentiments concerning marriage, I asked if she was happy. She said she was, but I only half believed her. And now I must put the same question to you. It is a very important question, left I, 
from a young girl to a married woman so many years her senior, and I shall not answer it. Pardon me, dear madam, said she, laughingly throwing herself in my arms and kissing me with playful affection. But I felt a tear on my neck as she dropped her head on my bosom and continued, with an odd mixture of sadness and levity, timidity and audacity. I know you're not so happy as I mean to be, for you spend half your life alone in Grassdale, while Mr. Huntington goes about enjoying himself where and how he pleases. I shall expect my husband to have no pleasures but what he shares with me, and if his greatest pleasure of all is not enjoyment of my company, why, it'll be the worse for him, that's all. If such are your expectations of matrimony, Esther, you must, indeed, be careful whom you marry, or rather, you must avoid it altogether. End of chapter 41